Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Backstage Gaming, dramatic takes on your favorite games. I'm Chris. And I'm Dylan. And we're here, again. Performing for you. Performing for you. You can join in, too. At our peak, we're we're both operating at 100% efficiency. Put your hands together. I just said the word proficiency, Dylan. As we take you through this podcast. Dylan, (laughs) I can't podcast tonight. I just said the word proficiency. (laughs) The boozy milkshake has taken hold. Um, oh, let me drink some more wine. <laughs> anyway, hi, everybody. This is the everybody. coronavirus podcast in which we just stopped caring. <laughs> we, we have accepted our inevitable end. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. Uh, we are here, and we are in full form, and we are ready and happy to take you with us on a journey through the intricacies of narrative and interactivity as only we can which is to say, in a very meandering and probably not particularly well-thought-out way. But that's uh, why you listen to podcasts, right? Yeah. And today, we have an episode that legitimately spawned out of Dylan sharing something that he disliked with me. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't dislike it. I no, just... I think we both had similar feelings, which is like, this is neat, but also not for us. Right, right. As much as it wants to be for us. Let's not um, leave them in suspense, Chris. What did I send to you? You sent to me, uh, there, there is a game called For Honor, which I don't think either of us plays. Um, my friend Joe has played a bit of it back in the day. I don't think he still plays, though. It looks fun. Yeah, it looks interesting. I've definitely thought about it, but it is a, a like, who would win in a fight between samurai and knights and vikings? Um, and that's the game. <laughs> Um, that was a great character voice, by the way. <laughs> Hello, I really like these hypotheticals, but we're, it, it is a, 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 a it's a game. <laughs> well, um, while, while, while you're ruining the audio. <laughs> <laughs> For Honor is a game where it's, it is genuinely like you pick what kind of knight or samurai or viking you want to be and you go and fight other people. And... In the model, in the in the grand tradition of ongoing non-story based games, like I think there is a story mode in For Honor, but like that's not the reason that it exists. All right. So um, to be honest, I genuinely did not know that For Honor was still getting updates. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize until that you game sent me still this had today. a scene. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in in the grand tradition of like perpetual gameplay models, uh, a lot of the thing with this game is the release of new 
like character classes or character cosmetics. And Dylan sent me a video, uh, which is the trailer for a new crossover event that For Honor in 2020 is doing with the Prince of Persia franchise, specifically the Prince of Persia Sands of Time franchise, which ran from 2003 to 2005. <laughs> which, like, is a is a trilogy that is near and dear to my heart. Um, and the heart of, like, many others, but, like, you know, I, I was kind of looking at this ad, and I was like, alright, but besides, like, you know, maybe the thousand or so people who still think of Prince of Persia fondly, who is this for? <laughs> yeah, and, like, okay, in in the, f the, giving this event, to use that term criminally loosely... The most recent Prince of Persia game was not 2005, it was 2010 with Prince of Persia The Forgotten Sands, which is still a calendar decade ago. And, like, to, to its credit, Dylan and I both watched this trailer, and I'll, I'll probably stick a link to it in the tweet thread for this episode. There's cool stuff here. There's some cool environment designs. There's, like, a new map that they're unveiling as part of this, and so, like, that looks kind of cool. There's some new, like, models for the generic enemies that you come across. The actual, like, Prince of Persia skin is kind of mediocre, but, like, whatever. But more than anything, I was just kind of baffled. Like Dylan was saying, this, like... I genuinely think that Prince of Persia, Sands of Time, Warrior Within, and Two Thrones are, like, three of the best games of their console generation. Uh, Prince of... Sands of Time Specifically and Sands of Time and Two Thrones. <laughs> Warrior Within is fine. Uh, Sands of Time in particular is, like, one of my favorite games ever. Like, full stop, one of my favorite games. This makes no sense. Like, this is too baffling for me to even be excited about. <laughs> And that got me thinking about nostalgia bait, because this is something that we see a lot in video games, is developers who, whether this is the only idea they have, or whether it is a part of like what draws them to make whatever game they're making, a big portion of it comes down to like, hey, remember this thing from a long time ago that, you, that a lot of people really liked? It kind of reminds me of like, back when Devil May Cry was still uh, dead. Um, or <laughs> dormant, I should say. Yeah, when, uh, when, when it had entered its long sleep. In, in the 12-year gap between Devil May Cry 4 Holy and 5. Shit, that was 12 years. Yeah, I mean, like, we, like, we got I the I remember reboot. playing Devil May Cry 4 in, like, early high school with, with our, our mutual <laughs> friend Coop. Yeah. But, like, like, that didn't click for me until just now how long ago that had been. Like, again, the reboot came out in 2013, I want to say it was 2013, so that was, like, you know, five... That was the game, like, right in between the interim between those two games. Yeah. But, like, they, uh... I think it wasn't Monster Hunter. It was, like, Senren Basara or something like that. Some dynasty, like, some Musou-esque game that I don't actually know the, the name of. Anyway, there was, uh... <laughs> skin for one of the like a bunch of the characters that were all devil may cry characters and like it stung because we were all waiting for news of a potential devil may cry 5 that we hoped exist and we prayed it exist with all of our hearts but it was to never come yeah what, what the fuck was the name of this game i just don't <laughs> remember uh sengoku basara okay that's all right <laughs> curiosity saving we, we can move on <laughs>
But, like, that got me thinking about, like, th this is a relationship that a lot of games have. A lot of games try to tap into a, st a kind of nostalgia. That's right, Prime Federation Force. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> but that's what I kind of wanted to talk about, is, like, games that do this blatantly, because there are a lot of very blatant examples of this, and kind of looking at, like, what are games that use this in a way that is compelling and good, and what are games that use this in a way that makes me sad? Well... Let's talk about the Metal Gear Solid 3 Pachinko game I, rendered I, in the Fox engine. I'm sorry. Wait, you didn't know about this? I did not. Please educate like, me now. Okay, I, I'm surprised just because you've you've been my friend for this long and I don't shut the fuck up about this series. <laughs> um, so after uh, Metal Gear Solid 5 came out and Konami kicked Kojima out or Kojima left in or the whatever teeth. happened. Yeah, um, they decided to use the Fox engine, you know, that fucking amazing engine they used for the visuals and physics and everything in Metal Gear Solid 5. They used it to animate cutscenes from Metal Gear Solid uh, 3 Snake Eater, i.e. the most popular game in the franchise. But the cutscenes were for a pachinko machine. Uh, for people who don't know, pachinko is a type of game. Uh, it's like a it, it's basically a slot machine uh, that's popular in Japan. I, Actually, I think it's a literal uh, slot machine because it's Apache slot, not Pachinko. Who asked for this? No one. Uh, Japanese boomers, because Japanese boomers love gambling. <laughs> um, and Konami was uh, tapping into that market specifically. Wow. Yeah, that's even more blatant than any of the things like I was thinking of. It's like pandering to nostalgia um, for like, people who've never played that game. <laughs> it's pandering to nostalgia... Not even to sell a game, but to, like, promote a Skinner box. <laughs> Basically. Oh my god. That's sinister. Oh, it's gross, dude. It's, it's fucking gross. Wow. I'm sorry, you just broke okay, me a little I'm bit. I'm gonna have that. to... Uh, I need to I need I'm gonna to have to, cleanse. like, for your consideration later, I gotta find the Super Bunny Hop. Um, he did, he did a... He didn't do a review, but, like, he was talking about his time in Japan trying to find the Metal Gear Solid 3 patchy slot. Wow. Yeah. Um, while you're finding that, I'm going to talk about a game that engages with nostalgia in a way that yeah. makes me smile. Yeah, let's, let's, let's move on to something a bit um, more wholesome. I want to talk about a game that I love, and it's a game called Shovel Knight. Uh, I've probably talked about Shovel Knight before on this show, but Shovel Knight is great. If you haven't played Shovel Knight, what are you doing with your I'm life? playing other um, games, Chris. Jeez, don't be so judgmental. Yeah, <laughs> accurate. Eat my duff. Um, Shovel Knight <laughs> is... Shovel Knight is like Super Mario Bros... Meets, meets Mega Man, meets Castlevania, <laughs> meets yeah. It it is, it is a love letter to the eight bit platformer. It is as simple as you get. Really, you you can hit, you can jump, you can like hit below you while you're in the air. And there are a, there's a little bit of intricacy that opens up as the game goes on, but like that's the core of it. And you are a beautifully rendered and animated little pixel art knight with a shovel and you go on an adventure to save your partner and there's a beautiful world map and tons of like well done character sprites and it it there's not a ton for me to go into in depth about Shovel Knight because it's not a particularly deep game but it is to my mind one of the best pieces of like game I've ever played that is built entirely on the back of yeah. nostalgia like, Shovel Knight would not exist if there was not a subset of people who have a soft spot for the 8 and 16-bit era of pixel sprite art. Platforms. I would also argue that it's kind of one of the... Okay, I don't want to say this because this is 
mighty presumptuous of me, but I, I would say it's one of the more successful cases of uh, games trying a think, game trying I to tap into that market. And I think that's what it is, is it's trying to tap into that market, but it's not doing so carelessly. No. Like, you can tell from looking at this game and looking at all of the attention to detail and the way that, like, this is not an 8- or 16-bit game in terms of the color profile. They are making full use of the modern color palettes available to games, but they are using it in a way that very much evokes the feel of the 8- and 16-bit era. Say, like, everything about it, they're not intentionally holding back the technical abilities they had when they made it. They are using all of the, like, knowledge of game design that has come since the games that they are emulating were produced to make, and I'm going to say this knowing that there's going to be someone out there who's like, actually, Mario 3 is the best platformer ever made, <laughs> but genuinely made a better game than any of the games that they are trying to emulate. Mm. If you like Mario 3 more than Shovel Knight, that's fine. You're entitled to that opinion. But like from a game design perspective. Oh, I feel perspective, like you're going to invite a lot of ire here, buddy. <laughs> come at me. I'm just saying Shovel Knight's developers have the benefit of 20 plus yeah. years of learning and of experience and of being able to look at what has worked and what has not. I'm going to whisper like, to my so copy of Sonic 2 and Sonic 3 and Knuckles, Shh, he didn't mean that. <laughs> but like... And I think that's that's what makes for a really good version of this. It's one thing to just be like, we're going to make a game that's going to make all the people who like the NES right. buy it. And it's another to like start from a place of liking that aesthetic and liking those games yourself and say, like, how can we yeah. pay homage to this thing that we also as creators have like, nowadays for? we actually have people starting to tap into the Nintendo 64 and PlayStation aesthetic of Kind of like yeah, look very at blocky like, polygons with like textures to give the impression of character detail. Yeah, or like look at something like, this isn't the same thing like aesthetically speaking, but look at something like uh, A Hat in Time. I would say A Hat in Time which is, is very, very close. much. Uh, it's, it's more GameCube. Like A Hat in Time it's is more is, like Super Mario Sunshine. Yeah, but it's, it's a love letter to like that like N64 through GameCube era of like 3D yeah. platformers that we don't get very yeah. many of anymore. Like, there, there's always this, you know, people grow up and people who are entering the game design sphere now are going to be nostalgic for the kinds of games they loved playing when we they were kids. We call this the 30 years and, cycle. Yeah. And so some of that is, like, I guess that's kind of where, like, the good side of this nostalgia mm -hmm. design comes from a lot of the time, is people making games, like, the kind of game that they wanted to play back when they were yeah. a kid. Um. Like, Shovel Knight is kind of the, the apotheosis of a whole bunch of different disparate games from that era. And same with A Hat in Time is, is kind of the, the fusion of a lot of different ideas from a lot of different 3D platformers in the, like, Mario 64, Crash Bandicoot, Jack and Daxter kind of Something band. I was going to say is, with this kind of approach, uh, a danger that I feel like a lot of people have is trying so hard to like fit into the limitations of the time or like you know having such reverence for like the low poly aesthetic of resident evil one for example that they shoot for that and rather than trying to make the best they can with like a set of limitations they set yeah. for themselves yeah. like you could make a game that looks like resident evil but why wouldn't you make a resident evil game that looks like vagrant story <laughs> yeah plus and even like the the design like there, there is a a point where like people will run into 
having so much reverence for, you know, whatever game series they are nostalgic for that they don't learn from the lessons that even like that series is developer yeah. learned over time. Like this, I can't think of a game that did this, but it would be like if um, it would be like if when what was that uh, Freedom Planet? Was that like Sonic yeah, like yeah. it would be like if Freedom Planet released and had all of the jank and all of the like unforgivable like unforgivable game sins of Sonic the Hedgehog yeah. one. OK, yeah, that's super fair. <laughs> yeah, like so there, there's a balance to be had in these games that managed to hit this where like they are showing their love for what came before, but they're not holding themselves hostage with that. But now that we've talked about games that do this well, let's let's go back to things that do this badly. And then uh, there's some some upcoming things that Dylan was talking oh, about yes. to speak on. I'm sorry. I've, I said things that do this badly, and now I'm back in the mental hellscape you conjured with Metal Gear Solid Pachinko oh, Machine. Dude, it's, 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 it sounds uh, bad. It sounds yeah, very, like very I, I bad. I sent a video to your Facebook. You can feel free to watch it at your leisure at any point. Honestly, to, to go back to what we were just talking about, or not to what we were just talking about, but to what kind of kicked this off, Prince of Persia. Okay. The, f- the last Prince of Persia <sighs> game that was released. Mm-hmm was a game called Prince of Persia, The Forgotten Sands. I still haven't played it. In which they opted to pretend like the flawed but compelling Prince of Persia 2008 never happened and make a in-between quill set immediately after the events of Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time, but before the events of Prince of Persia, The Warrior Within. Also kind of a movie tie-in game, but not really because it didn't have anything to do with the movie. Um... It wasn't great. Um, it wasn't terrible. I want to I wanna get out there and say that I did not hate Forgotten Sands. However, it felt very much like a game that was going, trying to go both, hey, look at this shiny new movie starring Jake Gyllenhaal, and also, hey, remember this game from 2003 that a lot of people oh really man, loved? It's got, it's got like... It, uh, I, I just Googled uh, the Steam page and it got like a, it has a six out of ten for like the reception rate. Yeah, it's it's not great. Like, however, it is. There are some. It is ten dollars on Steam. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to add that to my wish list. See if it goes on sale anytime <laughs> soon. And it, it it to me falls into like the worst place in this like nostalgia spectrum where there's nothing about it that is egregious enough for me to like get upset mm-hmm. about. But it's also, like, it's not doing anything interesting with this thing that it is asking us to remember mm-hmm. fondly. It's literally just saying, hey, remember Sands of Time? Cool, here's another story based on that, but without any of the things that really made Sands of Time uh, special. The, uh, didn't you get, like, cool elemental powers or something? You did, and they were, like, interesting, but they weren't anything... I guess let me put it this way. You know how Sands of Time... The platforming, like, once you got the rhythm for it, it almost turned into, like, a rhythm yeah. game. Like, you, there was just such a, a natural flow to the way that the game played and the way that you moved and, like, the timing for all of the different things. And so by the time you're getting, like, endgame, you hit these long stretches of, like, pure platforming where one fuck yeah. up means you die, but you know how the game thinks and you know how the game wants you to time things, and so you fall into just, like, this kind and of And this is coincidentally what made it. 2008 so good, <laughs> is that it was built yep. entirely Prince around Prince that. Hit this really well, I would argue too. that for all of its shortcomings, 2008 did this better than any of the Sands of Time games. 
I, I would agree with that. I think that it, with the benefit of like what they had learned from Sands of Time, they were able to do a really good job of just like nailing that platforming mm-hmm. element. Forgotten Sands, by comparison, it is trying to do that and it's trying to use the elemental powers in similar ways. Like there's a power you get that like you have an ice power that you can use to like freeze patches of running water into like something you can run on which in theory is really cool, but in practice it just felt, like, sticky and clunky. Oh, ew. And, like, it, it just, yeah, it, it just, all of the care and love that went into making the platforming segments of the Sands of Time trilogy and Prince of Persia 2008 so good just oh, I would even there. argue that, like, the original MS-DOS Prince of Persia, like, flows yeah. very well. I would 100% agree. It's janky as all hell, and it requires you to, like, really learn what the game wants you to do. But it is really genuinely well put together, and, like, once you find that rhythm, it's very satisfying. And, yeah, Forgotten Sands had none of that. Like, it it had all of the trappings of a Prince of Persia game, but, like, none of the, like, necessary time and care had gone into, like, making the pieces all fit together right. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, like, you, I was left with this game that was, like, very much wanting me to think of it in the same place as these other games that I loved, and it just didn't belong there <laughs> at all. Mm. Which, again, is just, like, to me, it, I, I almost would have preferred if it was a trash fire. Yeah. Like, if it had been terrible and I could get worked up about it, that would be one thing, and that would be, like, there would be a part of me that's like, man, I love ripping into this game. But it doesn't even have that. It doesn't. It's it's just bland and poorly mm. done, which is that's a bummer. How? A, yeah, it's it's a real <laughs> bummer. I, I was don't like, I, like, because all this time I'm like, I was really hoping for like a hidden gem Prince of Persia game that just it would be great if it was. I will say the way that they allow you to use the uh, the elemental powers makes the combat a little more interesting than it was in Sense of fair. Time. Although I will say Warrior Within. However. And uh, uh, Two Thrones, both. Yeah, that that's another conversation. I'm sorry. Yeah. However, the the downside of that is they're like, we made the combat more interesting. Let's also make it longer. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. No. It's it just like, and I think that's kind of to tie it back into my previous statement. It didn't learn the lessons that it needed to from the games that it was asking us to be nostalgic for. It was all aping, but none of the, like, forward trajectory that something like Shovel Knight or Iconoclasts or Had in Time has that, like, gives it that, you know, oh, this is why I should play this and not just go play the game this, this right. is reminding me of. Right. Do you have any that are um, coming to mind, Dylan? And then I think after that, after that, we'll head to the playbill and then we'll come back and we'll have uh, some discussion about the upcoming yeah, nonsense. Yeah. Um, I don't want to talk about blank because blank ties into blank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, mm, how cryptic. I guess, like, what you were saying kind of reminded me of, uh, Bloodstained, uh, Ritual of the Night. Okay. Which, interesting. Um, first of all, I want to say that I love Bloodstained. It is one of my favorite games of last year. I, I still need to beat it. It, like, the one bad thing about Bloodstained is that, like, it's slightly too big for its own good. Um, I mm. got to, like, the, if not the final area, then, like, the penultimate area, and I'm like, all right, I'll yeah. pick this up later. There's other things I want to play. Um, Ritual of the Night is the full release, while Curse of the Moon is, like, the mini Castlevania 2, yes, right? Yes. Okay, cool. Just making sure I had my my games correct. So, yeah, for, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Bloodstained Ritual of the Night was a game by 
I can't uh, think of his name, but he's Igarashi. the designer of Castlevania. Igarashi. Thank you. Uh, but he's the guy who developed a lot of the early Castlevania games up through and including Symphony of the Night. Did he do the Aria games as well? Uh, yeah, I think he, he, did. he did. He didn't actually direct um, Symphony of the Night, but he was like a lead designer on Symphony of the Night. And then he basically did every nonlinear Castlevania game after that. Yeah. Um, and then he left. Uh, he left Konami. Konami? Thank you. I I had a complete brain meltdown, and I almost said Capcom, and I was like, "That's <laughs> not right." Uh, yeah, you know, Capcom's uh, Castlevania. That's Devil May Cry um, and or Ghosts and Goblins. <laughs> <laughs> but he left. He left Konami, and he kick, essentially kickstarted a game called Bloodstained mm. Ritual of the Night. <laughs> Thank you for covering my milkshake-addled brain. How um, long ago did you have these milkshakes? Literally like five hours at this point. I also just like ate a whole lot of pizza, and I'm kind okay, of sleepy. I got you. Um, um, but he he kickstarted this game, Bloodstained uh, Blood. Bloodstained the Moon. Yes. Uh, so there was Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, which is like essentially a love letter to the nonlinear Castlevania. Castlevania, yeah, ca- specifically Castlevania Symphony of the Night, but like all of the the nonlinear Castlevania games. Uh, and as a Kickstarter reward, and also just like a bonus for for hitting an extra goal, they also released a game called Bloodstained Curse of the Moon, which is basically the same thing, but for the linear Castlevania game. So it's like a four-level, like, you know, short and Castlevania-esque. Yeah. yeah. In the style of like Castlevania, Castlevania 2, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Anyway. Yeah, no, pl- playing through Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, it was very much like... Sending me back to those halcyon days of being, what, 12, 13, 14 in playing Castlevania Aria of Sorrow and Dawn of Sorrow on my DS uh, during long car rides. Um, I don't really have anything negative to say about Bloodstained. Uh, I think, like, the big thing is it's slightly too long for its own good. And on top of that, I guess it's like, I don't want to say it's derivative because it's not, but it's it's basically just like, the Castlevania you grew up playing and more content. Okay, Which, yeah, I was, was going to be kind of my my question for mm-hmm. you is like, do you feel it's exactly what I it... wanted? But like, I could also see why people would be like, well, I could play legitimately any of these other nonlinear Castlevania games and have a th- not only the same experience but a more leaner version of the same experience. Yeah, that was going to be kind of my question is like, do you feel like? What does it do differently from the games that it is, um, you know, calling you to recall? I think the big thing is, uh, okay, it's it's a couple things. Um, so Bloodstained brings back Aria of Sorrow's like soul capturing system, where if you beat an enemy, there's a random percent chance that like you will gain an ability from them. Unfortunately, I just haven't really felt the need to use any of those abilities, whereas in Castlevania uh, Aria of Sorrow, I use those all the time. And the reason because of that is, uh, like, my favorite stuff to use in Bloodstained is the weapon techs, which are these fighting game input moves that uh, each weapon has that you can grind and unlock and stuff like that. I, I think it, it's it's just kind of this thing where, like, they put everything that people wanted in there without consideration for how that would lead to the final overall package okay um and again like that's not a mark against this game for me this is one of my this is probably one of my favorite uh you know quote-unquote castlevania games uh koji igarashi games i think i like bloodstained more than symphony of the night 
I think I like it slightly less than Aria of Sorrow, so it falls somewhere in there. Um, yeah. So you're you're saying that it's it was, and obviously I'm I'm kind of putting words in your mouth, but like mm-hmm. to to try and translate this just to make sure that I'm getting. it. Oh yeah, go ahead. It was more. It was concerned more with fitting as much Castlevania in it as it could. Yeah. Than it was with like providing a clear and cohesive. Yes. Like it, it didn't curate the Castlevania that it included. Yes. As much as maybe it, you would have it, it wanted it to. to appeal to so many different people, so many different fans of so many different entries that like it's kind of this giant chimera Frankenstein monster of a Castlevania gotcha. game. Uh one that again I love, but like one that also feels like it could be a little leaner. Yeah, and I, I think that's also a, a trap that a lot of these nostalgic properties fall into of like they don't want to leave anything out mm-hmm. for fear that that one thing will be the thing that, you know, some subset of the fans were really wanting. Yeah. Even if it may be leaving that thing out would have led to a more tight overall game. Yeah, I, I think you basically get exactly what I'm saying. Uh, cool. When I when I'm- I mentioned Bloodstained, I had to figure out what exactly I was trying to say. And then like we we got there, basically. Good. I, I'm glad we did. And you know where else we got to? The Playbill? The threshold of the Playbill. Uh, so follow that. me inside! Woo! Here we are. Time to plug each other and ourselves. Hey, <laughs> Dylan. <laughs> hey, Dylan, tell me about your podcast about giant robots. <laughs> Spring that on me. I I think I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Chris, I feel like I've done this joke before, but you like giant robots. I do. I like giant robots. You do. I'm gonna cut the rest of this joke because we definitely have done this before. Yeah, we've de- <laughs> it, it's it is us. We have most certainly made this particular Mega XLR reference in the past. <laughs> But if you like giant robots, you, the listener, not you, Chris, um, you should check out Dude, You Remember Macross, where I get together with our mutual friend, Coop, actual Dojin character, bringing it back just to spite you. Um, and we, we, we talk about this old, it started in the 1980s uh, mecha anime called Super Dimensional Fortress Macross, and that is a... It, it is since spiraled into a behemoth of a franchise... I think the the, la- the latest entry came out like, three years ago, maybe. But it's a uh, it's a pretty cool show. Um, it's talks a lot about uh, pop culture and the military and how that all ties together. And if that sounds like that's your thing, you should find us at Dude. You remember that is D U D E. So you can find us on anchor.fm slash Dude. You remember, uh, and we are also on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. Uh, that is Dude. You remember Macross. You should also go check out the Unexplored Places. It's an actual play show using the Scum and Villainy play or uh, game system for its second season about middlingly competent space outlaws and the misadventures they get up to. Dylan and I are both in it. It's a great time. It's fun stories, dumb jokes, wacky hijinks, genuine like original music that shocks me sometimes. Like the last episode that came out uh, featured an originally produced space pirate sea shanty. I love it. It's a great show. I'm happy to be part of it. And you should listen to it. And you can listen to it 
and find it by going to unexploredcast.libsyn.com or by heading to Twitter and searching for at unexploredcast. I want to want to really quickly plug a uh, a couple shows that I'm in that are currently releasing. One is a show called The God's Head Incidental, which is about a city full of gods and people who rather would rather wish they weren't there. Uh, it's currently being released, and you can find out more about that on Twitter at God's Head Pod. And a show called Superstition. They're currently releasing their season two, and there is a two-part zombie adventure arc that I am a guest in, and it's a great time. And you can find that on Twitter at Pod Superstition. Thank you, as always, to our patrons over at patreon.com slash bsgpod. This is all your fault, all of it, including the, the dumb stuff that comes out of my mouth. Uh, and if and you want mine. it to be your fault, too, on all of our, all, all mouths, our mouth. Um, <laughs> and if you want it to be your fault, too, you can make that so by going to patreon.com slash bsgpod and helping us to do this and do it more and do it better. Uh, I am continually humbled by the fact that uh, we have the support that we do and that we're not losing money making this show because that is incredible. And uh, I'm for all of my the stupid stuff I say, I'm thank you all very, very much. And thank you to the HP Video Game Podcast Network for having us on the network. It's a network full of shows about video games from all different angles, whether that's the fandom angle, the news angle, the development angle, or the more artsy highbrow angle like we are. You know, this notoriously highbrow show. Yeah. Uh, And if any of that sounds good, you can find all of those shows being retweeted by uh, the HP Video Game Podcast Network at HPVG Pod Network on Twitter. Yes. Yes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back. Ah. Welcome back to the show. Ah, oh, Skeletor. I, <laughs> delete that. That was dumb. I'm so fucking sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's funny. Uh, <laughs> fuck. Hey, Dylan. We when I when I proposed this episode, you sounded like you had a few uh, more immediately topical games that you were interested in talking about. Read this, Chris. Oh, speaking of re, uh, Chris, have you seen uh, any? <laughs> Dio from JoJo's Bizarre. No, uh, <laughs> you're approaching me. <laughs> oh, I don't. I have no idea what. I haven't watched any of that season of JoJo. I don't know what the voice actor for Dio sounds. like. I mean, like, like close enough, honestly. <laughs> uh, that's anyway that's both Japanese and English. Anyway, yes. Um, speaking of re Resident Evil. Uh, so Resident mm. Evil 2 remake came out last year. Resident Evil 3 remake is coming out this year. Mm-hmm. Have you seen like a let's play of Resident Evil 2? I know we talked about it uh, for a couple I've episodes. I've seen some. Uh, my my favorite thing that I have come across from Resident Evil 2 is uh, there's a villain in Resident Evil 2 named Mix- Mr. X, and someone has modded the game on PC so that whenever he like the the sounds of <laughs> X gonna give it to you. <laughs> Just emanates from Mr. X and gets louder as he pursues you. Yep. <laughs> and it's incredible. Uh, but that's the ex- that's most of my knowledge. I I know what I know of Resident Evil 2, uh, mostly from the conversations that we've had. Right, right. Um, so I I know very little about RE3. Most most of my Resident Evil knowledge is 
uh, one and two from the little I've played of one and what I've talked with you about, and then Resident Evil Four because it's Resident Evil Four. Yeah, that's that's fair. I also know very little about Resident Evil Three. Uh, the extent of my knowledge on the original Resident Evil Three is that obviously it came out it came out after Resident Evil Two. It it was kind of a more action oriented. Um, unlike the first two games, there was only one character so who had like you know one campaign. But that came that campaign would actually have different story events play out depending on which locations you visited first. Oh, that's kind of um, cool. Yeah, it's really cool. It's not going to be in the remake, but it was cool. Um, and yeah, that's all I really know about Resident Evil 3. I was never too interested in playing it just because nothing about the, the, the summary of the story really grabbed me. Plus the idea of having to play Resident Evil PS1 with tank controls while fending off Nemesis who can show up at any point in your game just sounded like way more stress than I was looking for um, ever. Because I... What about it? seemed to what what about it was so stressful um because like nemesis is actually like okay you know nemesis right uh i'm aware okay of... yeah so in in resident evil 3 there is a in resident evil 1 and 2 there are uh the final boss of both of those games is called a tyrant um and they're like a zombie but like they're fucking seven eight feet tall and they have this huge ass claw that they used to impale you and like whatever, whatever. Uh, Nemesis in Resident Evil 3, Nemesis, is a modified tyrant that is met like that was created specifically to hunt you down. Basically, it's the T1000 or <laughs> T800. I, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, basically, it, it's the Terminator. <laughs> you, you are Sarah Connor and it is the Terminator. Um, you don't want to be Sarah Connor when the Terminator's around. No. Exactly. You you get it. Um, so I never wanted to play that because that sounded fucking scary and terrifying. And like I I enjoyed the pre-rendered tank control Resident Evil games, but I never felt comfortable enough with them that I could I would feel comfortable dealing with that. So I never played Resident yeah. Evil 3. However, uh Resident Evil 2 remake came out, and you know, for all of its shortcomings, uh like I've talked about them in previous episodes. Like the big one is that the campaigns don't quite hit the same way that uh, the originals campaigns hit mm. uh, with the story events. But, like, they, they turned Mr. X, the tyrant uh, in Resident Evil 2, into a more nemesis-like character who will follow you around and stalk you and, you know, blah, 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 da-da-da-da-da. And the thing I really liked about Resident Evil 2 was that it was kind of... It, along with Resident Evil 7, was a return to form of this more, like, slower more deliberately paced resident evil experience where your ammo is super limited and you have to be super cautious and conservative and everything um but with that came the over the shoulder camera that resident evil 4 introduced which was a i i love resident evil 4 i think it's one of the best action games one of the best third person shooters of all time part of the reason why it works so well is because despite your limited movement you um enemies will react to shots in a very specific ways and like if you know how to if you know what part of a zombie to shoot at like a specific time you can kind of there's a lot of strategy involved in that and you know uh they incorporated that into the gameplay loop of resident evil 2 and if you shoot them the right way it unlocks your ability to do a kick-ass spin kick yeah yeah unfortunately you can't do spin kicks in resident evil 2 but 
they nail everything else, so I can't be too mad. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, I wasn't super interested in Resident Evil 3 because I had no real attachment to the original, but uh, a couple of gameplay videos came out um, in the past couple months, and my interest in it skyrocketed. Uh, Resident Evil 3 p- on the PS1 being a more action-oriented Resident Evil game feels perfectly suited to a third-person shooter perspective. Mm-hmm. It definitely feels like... Uh, it, it feels more suited to that. In the original Resident Evil 3, you even had like a, a quick dodge. If you, you, uh, if you pressed, I think it was like the aim button the second a zombie was about to grab you, um, you would do a dodge. In the Resident Evil 3 remake, that has been changed to if you hit the dodge button... Just as a zombie is about to grab you, you you basically go into witch time from Bayonetta. Uh, things slow oh, down bad. into bullet time, and you can get some shots off. And that kind of that kind of balance of like you know Resident Evil Two remakes horror design with like a more Resident Evil Four or you know some other action game type of mechanics have, has made me a lot more interested in Resident Evil Three. I think also on top of that because I am not so beholden to resident evil 3 it doesn't have to live up to the same expectations that a resident evil 2 remake did so yeah i feel like resident evil 3 can feel a lot more comfortable in doing its own thing so for you it kind of hits that sweet spot where like you you pick up on the references but you're not you are not so much the target of the nostalgia bait that like it needs to hit all of the right notes. Exactly. Um, it, okay. And in a way, because of that, I'm more excited for this game than I am for Resident Evil 2 Remake, which I played Resident Evil 2 in high school and I loved it and I visit it to this day from time to time. I love Resident Evil 2 Remake, but I don't think it... I love it so much that like, if I wanted to revisit the story of that game, I would still probably fire up Resident Evil 2. Uh that's how much I love the original Resident Evil 2. With Resident gotcha. Evil 3, I don't have that same baggage is not the right word, but like, you know, that same sentiment. Yeah, I, I get what you mean. Um, you don't have that that tether to the original. Yeah. So like the fact that this is like a completely new and fresh experience that I am willing to play and enjoy as a completely new and fresh experience is exciting to me. Yeah. Uh, before we leave Resident Evil, I'm curious where... On that kind of spectrum that we were talking about of, like, nostalgia for nostalgia's sake versus nostalgia to, you know, push push beyond, mm-hmm. where did RE2 remake fall on that for you? Definitely felt like it was pushing beyond. Like, all, okay. all of my uh, gripes with Resident Evil 2 remake uh, have less to do with, like, its quality of a game on its own right and more to do with, like... This moment was pretty cool, but I kind of liked it more in the, you know, it, it's it's literally it's just, just kind of just a nostalgia. personal preference. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, my, gotcha. my nostalgia for the PS1 game, unfortunately, wins out over the many advancements over uh, in the remake. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. The last big one that I want to hear you talk about, because we're, we're coming up on near end of episode territory. Oh, yeah. Let me take a look at the timestamp real quick. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're, we're getting there. That's comfortable. We're, we're in a good spot. Mm-hmm. And I want to hear you talk to me, Dylan, because you're the one who's played this because I'm a fake gamer boy, um, and I'm still <laughs> only a few hours into Resident to uh, to I almost said Resident Evil Seven to Final Fantasy Seven for the first mm-hmm. time. What are your thoughts on the Final Fantasy Seven remake that is coming out? We can actually say soon. Now. Yeah, yeah. So 
a demo came out uh, last week. Oh, yeah. Have you gotten to play that? I played that demo like 12 times, dude. Come oh, on wow. now. Okay. <laughs> you, you saw me when I was playing. Well, you didn't see me because I was back in Ohio at this point. But like I've told you about the amount of time I played uh, Devil May Cry 5's demo. Of yes. course, I played the shit <laughs> dozens out of, of times out of Final Fantasy VII's demo. I uh, I really like it. There's it, it's definitely weird. Like, but once you get used to it, once it clicks, uh, you start to get really excited at just like the possibility of what this game could be. And I think that's like the most important thing of a demo on its own. There were mechanics where I'm like, oh, this is cool, but I would really like to see this expanded upon. Which, like, you know, I think Hopefully. that's what a demo should do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But I guess, like, let me let me tell you about my experience with Final Fantasy. <laughs> Please no, do. I'm just I, I'm fucking around. But like, I uh, when when my parents originally got Final Fantasy VII for my twelfth birthday back in uh, 2006. Holy shit! Uh, <laughs> I I remember I like snuck down into my parents' uh, room to steal the copy of the game from them so I could play it before school started. That's how excited I was to play that game. Um, and when the Final Fantasy VII Remake demo came out, I had to go to work, but I made sure I, like, the, I, I got up, I checked Twitter, I saw that the demo got surprise dropped, I instantly got out of bed, went downstairs, da- uh, downloaded it, made myself breakfast, breakfast, made myself breakfast, breakfast, fuck you, made myself breakfast while it downloaded, and then played it, and it, it kind of elicited a lot of the same feelings. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I had to, I, this is just like a gauge of how much nostalgia Final Fantasy VII has for me. But I, I really enjoy Final Fantasy VII Remake, but I think the most interesting thing about it, and I can say this about the Resident Evil remakes as well, is I like it much less as like, uh, oh, it's just like Final Fantasy VII when I played it fucking 14 years ago. Holy shit. Um, and it's, it's more this case of like, oh man, this is like, taking everything like every like step forward the series has made in even it like even in final fantasies like i won't say worst games but like their most controversial titles they took elements from that and put it in this remake because like i feel like final fantasy uh as a series has gone through like a bit of an identity crisis back when final fantasy 7 first released it was like it was a triple a game like everyone was like holy shit final fantasy 7 um, yeah, but like since then, like, you know, people have, you know, gaming has become more, I don't want to say sophisticated, but, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, please. Um, uh, um, sir, Mr. Gregory, I'm going to need you to get a clean take of gaming has become more sophisticated. Fuck please. you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, you know what I mean, though? Like, I know what sto- you mean. I know what you mean. Like, because like the, the whole appeal, the whole draw of Final Fantasy seven for so many people was the story and the the sheer scope of the world and that is something that like can be done with many games nowadays uh you know you've played the witcher 3 you know what i'm talking about and so like i guess like the the thing is like because turn-based games uh japanese rpgs are such a niche genre and have only grown more niche since then i guess like there's always kind of this thing of like Final Fantasy has to reinvent itself if it wants to stay in the AAA space. Um, yeah. And so, like, with Final Fantasy, a little bit of Final Fantasy thirteen. once we got to uh, Final Fantasy thirteen two and Lightning Returns, but, like, particularly with Final Fantasy XV, they've been really trying to reinvent 
the the games and how they play, which is kind of dumb to me because Final Fantasy XII inspired Dragon Age of all things. But you know that's <laughs> neither here nor there. Yeah. Um, Final Fan. So you know they they want to find a way to like become more action oriented without alienating the fan base that has stayed with them since the original release of Final Fantasy VII. Yeah. Um, and I think the Final Fantasy VII remake is probably the happiest balance they've made ever. Um, it has like the Dang, more action. Yeah, yeah, like, but like seriously though, uh, it has. I'm, the... I'm, I'm hearing that coming from you, the person who like not to, and this is not necessarily like a, uh, you know, apples and this is a little bit apples and oranges, but the mm. degree to which you love, for example, Final Fantasy twelve. Yeah. Oh, I hearing you say that about this remake is. Mm. That's high praise. <laughs> but like, I, I guess like the thing is that, um, so what Final Fantasy VII does is it, it takes like, okay, okay. I have to, I have to kind of go into the quote unquote politics of the Final Fantasy fan base because God, is it exhausting. Get politics out of my game. Oh my God, shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, I, sorry, I, I left, I let Terry out of the basement. I'll put him back. Not Terry Bogard. He would never. No, not Terry Bogard. Terry Bogard is, ter- Terry Bogard dr- drinks nothing but protein shakes mixed with respect women juice. Is <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that, that's a good one. Terry Bogard's the original himbo. True. <laughs> anyway. <Bless. laughs> <laughs> I, I think what Final Fantasy VII Remake does is that um, basically in the Final Fantasy fan base, there's this idea, this notion that every game after Final Fantasy IX, which is when like the series really started to like mix things up, has been terrible or a disaster or something. Ignoring the fact that Final Fantasy X is one of the, A, one of the most beginner-friendly entries in the series, but also B, one of the best-selling entries in the series there's just like the sense of elitism where it's like, you know, Final Fantasy four through nine, those were the golden years. And if you Yeah, uh, you know And you'll you'll get that any time a long running series makes like a substantial change. Yeah. And it, there's it, gonna be a subset of the fans who are not here for and it. And like the thing is like four through nine, the only thing that really distinguished them uh mechanically is character creation. Uh in terms of combat, they all play extremely similar. Uh, they all have like the ATB system where the fights go in real time um, and you have a gauge that fills up. And when your gauge fills, that's when your menu activates and blah, blah, blah. Final Fantasy X did away with that. Uh, Final Fantasy X gave like a more strategic, like turn based take on it where characters kind of each character has like a very specific tactical role. Like you would have Waka who's he can throw a blitz ball, which is basically a soccer ball at enemies uh, flying enemies. Tidus attacks fast enemies. Aaron is a samurai who can go th- cut through enemies with really tough armor. That type of thing. Um, Final Fantasy XII, which is my personal favorite entry in the series, has fights happen seamlessly in real time on the world map. So you could be exploring, there could be an enemy off in the distance, and when you approach them, you don't transition to a, a, a battle, uh, battle screen or whatever you want to call it. You just fight them on the map and then you keep going. Final Fantasy XIII has this thing called the stagger meter, where if you exploit the enemies, like, I don't even think you have to exploit the enemy's weakness. You have to hit them with magic and that will make their stagger gauge go way up. But you need to hit them with physical attacks to stabilize that so it doesn't just drain instantly. It's a really hard thing to explain, but when you play it, it makes perfect sense. 
Um, yeah. And then Final Fantasy XV was... People compare it to Kingdom Hearts, but really it plays nothing like Kingdom Hearts. Uh, but it is an action RPG, just straight up. Because uh, they wanted to appeal more to that market. Uh, the more action-oriented market. And what Final Fantasy VII has done is it has kind of taken the stop-and-start uh, gameplay of Final Fantasy XII, where you can fight seamlessly on the overworld, but you can also pull up a menu at any time if you want to change what command you want the character to do. It, it takes that, it takes the more action-oriented gameplay with uh, 15, where you are actively combating things. It takes the stagger meter directly from Final Fantasy XIII, um, but refines it so that uh, it's a bit more varied and a bit more interesting. And then it also gives each character a very specific role to perform, um, where... You know, Cloud is your traditional swordsman, but Barrett is a he he has a gun for an arm, so he attacks um aerial creatures or creatures out of reach. Um and it it takes all of this it takes everything the series has entered like has had since, you know, it supposedly entered its identity crisis and refines it all into this one game. That I think feels That's really cool. Yeah. Th- it, I, I love Final Fantasy VII Remake, at least from like a kind of from a sentiment's not the right word, but you you know what I'm trying to say. Like from yeah. a series identity, like they're they're kind of putting their foot in the sand and saying, like, yeah, no, the last two decades we've been we we've spent with this franchise, like, this is it. Like, this is a part of this franchise, whether you like it or not, and it's going to enhance your favorite game. Yeah. That's really cool. No, and I, I I have not gotten a chance to get my hands on the on on the remake yet. And I also, like I said, I haven't played through Final Fantasy VII. But I did play a lot of, like, early Final Fantasies as a kid. Mm-hmm. And and the thing about, like, generally speaking, Japanese-style turn-based RPGs is that there is a definite level of, like, abstraction to them. Mm-hmm. Like, they are a very abstracted approach to combat. And the thing that makes that work is that it's kind of asking you to buy in, you know, imaginatively into like the conceit of these actions you're asking people to take in turn are representative of a more grandiose fight that is happening kind of in the same way that like playing D D. yeah what's happening is very simple and you have to kind of fill in the blanks with you know the language you use to describe what's going on and the you know your imagination mm-hmm. and final fantasy 7 Re- 7's remake from what i have seen of it feels like the developers like went back and played some early Final Fantasy VII, like some of the original, and were like, "What does this look like in our head?" Right. Well, I think and how can we? I think another part of it is that so many of the people working on Final Fantasy VII remake, and you know, in addition, like so many people who worked on the Resident Evil two and three remakes, were people who grew up playing those games. Yeah, and so and I think that mm-hmm. I think that that shows. Yeah. And it, it, Again, I have not gotten my hands on this, but it to go back to again that that metric of like, is it doing something new or is it just nostalgia for nostalgia's sake? It very much feels like it's on that like, even if it's not necessarily doing anything new, it's very much trying to push the property it is nostalgic for mm-hmm. further. I also want to say that like Final Fantasy VII remake in a lot of ways feels heavily inspired by 
Parasite Eve, which came out later that same year. Um, I have not played any of Parasite Eve. Yeah, have we never talked about Parasite Eve? I don't think we've ever talked about Parasite Eve. Oh my What's god! Parasite Eve? I oh boy. So I mean, I talk about Vagrant Story we, a lot. Maybe we don't have time for Parasite Eve. No, this no, week. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna talk, spend too much time talking about Parasite Eve. But uh, I haven't really. So you you've watched me play Vagrant Story though, where like you're kind of on a, the you're in the dungeon, and then an enemy approaches you. And then you open up a menu and this huge grid, like this sphere grid, this spherical grid uh, pops up around your character and, and any enemy in your range you can attack. Okay. That's that's a vagrant story. Uh, what Parasite Eve does is when you enter a random battle. Okay, I, I do want to tell you a little bit about Parasite Eve because it's honestly kind of a crime. I haven't shown you any of it <laughs> uh, when we live together. <laughs> I think Vagrant Story really stole a lot of its thunder because I'm like, oh, this is like Parasite Eve, but even cooler. Uh, <laughs> Parasite Eve is technically the sequel to like a 90s sci-fi novel. <laughs> and it you play a police officer on the NYPD and some okay. kooky shit starts happening where like uh, the mitochondria, which is the powerhouse of the cell, um, starts mutating in Accurate. various creatures um, and turning them into turning them into more monstrous versions of themselves, and to explain why that happens would take way too long. But you're playing as uh, NYPD officer Aya Bria, who, for whatever reason, like b- during all these goings on, she has developed strange powers, and so you are the only one who can do anything to stop all this weird shit that's happening in New York, and so. Um, the first level is Carnegie Hall. The second level is Central Park. It's a really cool game. Um, okay. The way combat works is that you're exploring these various real-world locations, and then you will enter a random battle. And when you enter that random battle, uh, you can actually move around freely in combat, and enemies will um, fling attacks at you, but you are you have like full power to avoid them. And you you're basically waiting for your ATB gauge to fill. Uh, which is active time battle. It's something that was in uh, the Final Fantasy games that determined when you could take your turn. In Parasite Eve, when your ATB gauge fills, you have the option of attacking with your gun, which you can fully customize, but to get into that would take way too long because uh, there's a lot of cool options you can do with uh, your weapons in that game. But, you know, if you don't want to shoot your acid poisonous uh grenade <laughs> rounds out of a sniper rifle which yes is a thing you can do in Parasite that's Eve. incredible i love that game so much if you don't want to do that um you can cast magic and magic takes up a certain percentage of your mp but anyway that's getting a little away from uh the, <laughs> the subject at hand which is basically in final fantasy 7 you are every hit you land as a character that contributes to their ATB gauge. And when their ATB gauge fills halfway or uh, all the way, you have the ability to pause the game and select an ability from a menu that you will then do in combat. Those are the real attacks do the you want to do. Damage. That, is, that is where the real strategy is. That is where the real damage is, like you said. Okay, that's um, a really cool balance. I love that. Yeah, like the the more action-oriented combat in Final Fantasy VII Remake is really just a formality. So it, it kind of, it kind of takes this element of strategy and positioning that Parasite Eve has, and, and it, it takes it into something that is, you know, more nostalgic in this case, which is Final Fantasy VII. That's really cool. I like that a lot. 
yeah, I, I'm really happy with Final Fantasy VII Remake. The two things that are really going to save or damn it at this point is how how deep does this rabbit hole go? How much stuff can I do with these characters? What Where do the uh, the customization options begin and end? Uh, mm-hmm. The second thing is, what what's the side content going to be like? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. But I, th- I think it sounds like they're starting on a good page. It, yeah. it sounds like they are committed to not just being like, here's Final Fantasy VII again, idiots. Um, right. Which, if they did that, it would sell. <laughs> right. Like, let's be it, real, it, it, it would sell. It wouldn't sell nearly as well, I don't think. No. But it would sell. I think, I think that, I like, and I say this again as someone who has only played a few hours of Final Fantasy VII, I'm excited for Final Fantasy VII Remake. I think it looks really cool. And I think that it's, it's rad to see a game get a remake of that caliber, for lack of a better way of putting it. And I think that feels like a good place to, to call it for today. Yeah, I think so too. Nostalgia's cool. Sometimes nostalgia leads to poop, but a lot of the time, in the right hands, nostalgia leads to greatness. There's a lesson in there for you, audience. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure it's profound. And you know what else is great and profound? The anticipation you will feel waiting for the next episode of Backstage Gaming. Until then, thank you so much for listening. And if you like what we're doing, remember that wherever you find us, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, wherever it is, Remember to leave a rating, leave a review, and tell everyone, everyone, about it. Don't think I'll know, don't think I won't know if you forget to tell somebody. <laughs> oh, I'll he'll know. know. And I you don't want him know. to know. Have you seen pictures of this guy? He's jacked. <laughs> hey, Dylan, what's our social media? <laughs> if you want to find us on social media so you can look up Chris's jacked, jacked Terry Bogard cosplay. Uh, eat you. <laughs> You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter. Our handle is at BSG underscore cast. And you can also find us on YouTube. Um, And, you know, if you want to talk about us, if you want to engage with us in any sort of way, I recommend you use that hashtag BSG pod. Also, huge, huge thanks to our friend Brendan French for the key art he has provided our show. If you want to check him out, uh, look at his other art, uh, you know, you can you can give him a glance at brennan-french.squarespace.com. That is B-R-E-N-N-E-N-French.squarespace.com. You can also find him on Instagram.com slash BrennanFrenchArts. You should also go and show some love to our friend BioQuery. He's the musician behind our theme song, Dot Sound Radio, Volume 1, Instrumentality. If you like that, you'll probably like some of his other music, and you can find that and check it out at his SoundCloud, which is SoundCloud.com slash BioQuery. That's B-I-O-Q-U-E-R-Y. Or you can search for BioQuery on Spotify. Also, thank you again to our patrons over at Patreon.com slash BSGPod. We appreciate all of the support, and we love you for it. And if you like what we're doing and you want to support us and help us just be able to do this more and better, the best way for you to do that is by going to patreon.com slash bsgpod. Thank you again to the HP Video Game Podcast Network for having us on the network. It's a great honor to be included with so many other great shows. And if you like our show, you'll probably like some of theirs as well. So go check them out. You can find them on Twitter at HPVGPodNetwork. And I think that's all I've got. So until next week. I'm going to be thinking nostalgically of our time here with you, and I hope that you'll be thinking that way too. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. I love you.